0: started this class as a, as a text-based study of the Book of Revelation, and that started more than years ago, more than two years ago. So it took us a while to get through Revelation, and we did it in a, as a text-based approach. Even though we think that the Book of Revelation is, speci- is addressing real issues in history, we kind of kept the history a little to the side. Uh, to to concentrate on on text as it were and and I will I will readily admit that the, that the text is is my comfort zone more than more than uh, uh, what should I say no text <laughs> so I'm happier to study the text than to to uh, try to explicate the text than to do anything else so what we've done since uh, after finishing the book of Revelation is to do things on the theme of cosmic conflict. Melissa Broughton did two sessions on John Milton and Paradise Lost, uh, and uh, now we have done a few sessions on the cosmic conflict and the future. And I have put uh, of America in, in there uh, to 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 in some ways look at issues that might be. Uh, Uh, of interest in a contemporary way and that may also in some ways be illuminated by a book like, like Revelation. Even though I'm not saying that there is a one-to-one relationship between this topic and, and that text, as it were. We're, we're, we're exploring things, and, and this is a kind of evidence-gathering enterprise, and I wish, I hope that you can hear me not as an advocate as mu- so much for a certain point of view, uh, as a uh, kind of uh, <coughs> up topics that we can assess uh, together and and i am not as <laughs> some people might think that i am just a rabid anti anti american or something which which i'm not i'm extremely respectful uh, more than you can re- more than you can imagine of the of the uh, history of this country and it's uh, it's carefully thought out institutions uh, and uh, and i just uh, don't want to be heard as a anti-American, because that would be too simplistic. But we will say a few things about that topic again today. So <coughs> let's. Uh, so here, here is uh, what happened since we talked. Ab- since we started doing these topics, I'm kind of despairing of getting to the fourth topic in a in a good way. Uh, the reacceptance of the mother, which uh, that's the title for the fourth topic. I will just mention what it is, and then maybe after the summer, because this is our last time before the summer. Maybe after the summer we could return to that topic if, if I sense that you are interested in, and if I am still interested in the topic. Because who knows what the summer could do to you. It could, I could lose interest in the topic and <laughs> that wouldn't, you know, right now I'm quite interested in it, but, uh, you know. So <clears throat> acceptances we have considered are the re-acceptance of the church estate. Reacceptance of extreme economic inequities. Reacceptance of unaccountable authority. We're still on that topic. And, and I would like to mostly do, uh, continue on that topic today. And then the fourth topic then which we would only, uh, only mention is reacceptance of the mother. And is what that topic would look like, uh, in a sort of literal way. This is Bernard of Clairvaux who in the uh, high middle ages, he will say, if you fear the father, go to the son. If you fear the son, go to the mother. And the theological implications of that outlook, of course, are huge. So I'd it would be interesting to talk about that in a theological sense and then also talk about it in a sort of broader metaphorical sense. And if any of you uh, would like to read an interesting book on uh, on, uh, uh, on the modern papacy, this would be the book to read, uh, Peter Nichols' The Pope's Divisions. I have uh, in two handouts ago I have given you the reference for this book Peter Nichols The Pope's Divisions there is a chapter in this book called The Road to Fatima and that's the chapter I would have liked to discuss with with this group uh, uh, from from the book The F- Pope's Divisions it's quite a perceptive chapter on the broader religious currents it's not just reacceptance of the mother as such but on the on broader religious currents in our time that might in fact also impact the Seventh-day Adventist community much more than Adventists are aware of uh, you wouldn't even think there could be any connection uh, just on the face of it but uh, anyway so be it the, uh, i'm not going to say more about that topic uh, but you get you can uh, let that uh, quotation sort of play in your mind and see what 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 it means theologically, the shape of unaccountable authority. We uh, let's uh, just run through these again. That there is a the there is a sort of basic acceptance of a uh, uh, in um, of an accountability in any structure that is imperial. Because emperors they do not uh, answer questions from the audience. Uh, And uh, monarchical structures do not either care much about uh, questions from the audience because their right to rule does not rise from below. They do not seek legitimacy from below. They have legitimacy from above. Certainly in in the traditional uh, uh, role of monarchy, you are monarch by what? By divine Right. You see, you're not, so your legitimacy is from above. You are ruling by divine right. This is God's system of, of government, and God is the one who appointed you, and God is the only one who can remove you, and you are accountable. If you are accountable at all, you are accountable only to God, not to anyone below you. And then there is also uh, the hierarchy, our hierarchical structure, Uh, where you have authority from above down and not from below up. There is also uh, the question of fraternity that you have uh, sort of in in church church, uh, affairs. You may have a a male-centered kind of structure. There is patronage, which is rife in all societies, including democratic societies, and and accountability thrives on notions of infallibility because if you are infallible, you don't really need to be held accountable. I mean, that is, you don't make mistakes. Accountability is most interesting where people don't make mistakes, isn't it? I mean, if you, ma- I mean, if, where you make mistakes, you might like to hold someone accountable, but if you don't make mistakes, you you don't need it. You see so, so there is a lot of moving parts here. We should probably accept we should probably put in a sixth point there too, and that could be personality uh, or 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 ways because some somebody you might have a structure that has is set up for accountability, but you can have people who occupy office, occupy their president, their leaders of this or that, and they might just uh, decide to disregard that structure they might just decide to bypass it and do things their own way my way or the highway or frank sinatra sings this song i live my life and what is more i did it my way you know so you have that kind of of uh, of uh, uh, you could have somebody doing doing things against the structure and i think we could give examples of that but let's not let's not uh, delay ourselves with that right now <coughs> back to leo xiii the pope uh, who who uh, who uh, is succeeding at who is coming uh, into his position at a tumultuous time in european and and world history uh, this is after this is during the time of bismarck in germany uh uh, during the time of the uh, emergence of the nation-state in Europe, Ita- Italia- Italian unification, a German nationalism uh, Prussian and very strong uh, German strongman Bismarck during the- those days, when the state asserts itself against the church. You have to see it that, as that. And in some ways the state asserts itself against the church because it is tired of the church. You have to see that there is not, this is not like the church is sort of caught innocently and off guard, you know, having done no wrong. There has been, I think by, by, uh, by many, uh, by wide agreement that the church has overreached. And when the state reasserts itself, it does so with a certain disdain for the church as a moral authority. The church has not played it, uh, well morally or politically, you might say. But here is Leo XIII who, who says that, Just as the end at which the church aims is by far the most noble of the ends, so also is her authority the most exalted of all authority and can in no way be looked upon as inferior to the civil power or in any way subject to it. You have to see the moving parts, you know, the context within which this is being said. Uh, and the context is a time when the state is asserting itself against the church, when there is also labor movements, when there is the ideology, in some ways, uh, ideologies that are, that are moving beyond religion, communism, Marxism, uh, that are also Uh, asserting themselves uh, and also asserting rights that people feel have been taken away from them by the powers that be. So he is speaking into that kind of context and he is saying that the church still intends to play a role and is he saying that the church intends to be accountable? He is not saying that nobody has ever said that. Nobody has ever said that. The high tide or the low tide. You know, it has, the church has never said that because it does not see itself as an accountable authority. It does see itself as accountable only to God. That, that there is a, this is a, this is your, your your sort of Default hierarchical structure, as it were. Uh, there is—it's uh, your your poster child for hierarchies. Now, for those of you who are interested in sports, uh, there are two um, huge and extremely influential organizations in the world of sports that are also ex- very uh, uh, full of patronage, uh, totally unaccountable, uh, and very corrupt <laughs> that's the international olympic uh, organization ioc is very much a, a a kind of structure that 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 just completely uh, disregards accountability and the other great uh, uh, um, structure in sports is the International Soccer Federation, f- football, the FIFA, F I F A, the International Football Association. The president of FIFA, I almost brought you a slide from him. He he's a Swiss. His name is Zepp Lutter. He he's he just was reelected for a fourth or fifth term because these reelections happen by patronage. You know this is your 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 quintessential uh, patronage system. And so, and there was a kind of contentious press conference just a couple of weeks ago, and he sa- and he answers. <coughs> he says to his questions, "I am Sepp Blatter. I'm the president of FIFA. I do not answer questions." Well, let's say, <coughs> let me say that no pope could have said it better, <coughs> because. Because this is, this is a person who, who actually does not see himself as accountable because his authority, his, his, his authority hovers above the layers where accountability might actually happen. Now, I, I did impose this on you two weeks ago on, on what is happening in Europe. Now, some Adventists have thought in the past that the message of Revelation 17 where there is a, a movement toward unity. Ten kings who have not yet gotten their kingdom, but then they will get their kingdom and they will go, get, all, give all their power over to the beast and they will rule with the beast for one hour. There has been a, 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 a tendency in Adventism to, uh, to think about that as a, a, a sort of uh, European uh, reunification kind of, uh, of movement. I don't think that is entirely off the chart. I don't think that is entirely outside, outside a legit legitimacy. But one has to watch it carefully and not, not rush to conclusions. Is there a movement today toward European uh, reunification? Definitely, there, there, definitely, there, there is, and 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 the reasons for that are 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 good reasons. Now, the next country that is knocking on the door to to uh, join the European Community, uh, it used to be called. (laughs) Very, it's very interesting the evolution of terminology here, because the the initial movement in Europe was happened in 1950 under the auspices at the initiative of. Uh, Robert Schumann, who was born in Luxembourg, but uh, who is uh, who? Uh, this is him, and who? Who uh, uh, his political roles in Europe were uh, in? Uh, was in France. Uh, his roles were in, in uh, France as foreign minister, finance minister, prime minister. He was in fact in what is called the Fourth Republic, and I, I actually got this book I mentioned to you that I planned to get it. This is a book, uh, a, a doctoral dissertation written just recently, 2007, uh, by Fimister, Robert Schumann, Neo-Scholastic Humanism and the Reunification of Europe a doctoral dissertation from the University of, of Aberdeen in Scotland that he did just a year or two, just two years after I'd finished my PhD at the University of St. Andrews just a few not far and the Scottish universities are quite you know, close together so he must have been there, this person must have been there actually in Aberdeen at the time when I was in St. Andrews but I have not, I'm sorry that I didn't get to meet him I think he is writing on a very interesting topic because Robert Schumann uh, has the title The Father of Europe and I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago that in 2007, the first initiative was taken to canonize Robert Schumann by the Roman Catholic Church uh, because he is seen as a person who, as a lay person, embodies, the, embodies how to be a good Roman Catholic, how to do it right, how to engage society in a constructive way. So uh, maybe within our lifetimes... He will be a saint, St. Robert Schumann, who is the father of Europe. That's his his title. So, <coughs> in the, uh, I, I've been reading this book. It's, it's quite tedious reading because I'm waiting and waiting for something really exciting to happen. And it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, I, I'm, I'm waiting to learn something that I didn't re- know at all before. There's something that is really sort of smoking gun type of stuff. But there is no smoking gun, there is just a, 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 well, a well-told story of his life, of Robert Schumann's life, and of the story of European, uh, uh, the moves to, uh, to unify Europe, <coughs> which started in 1950, when the French and the Germans decided to put the production of coal and steel under a united power, a in some way, supranational power. What does that mean? It means the French will not decide what to do with it, and the Germans will not decide what to do with it. An organ, a, 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 a an administrative organ, not accountable to the French only, not accountable to the Germans only, will bring these will bring the production or the 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 uh, industries of coal and steel uh, under under a new type of authority and this would be this was supposed to be the spearheading of european union and it was it had financial reasons it was supposed to benefit these countries financially but it was also the first chapter of european unity european economic and political unity so that's what he was responsible for Robert Schumann and then uh, how many uh, then, then it became the European Economic Community EEC and then it is now the European Union so they dropped economic because it's kind of embarrassing only to be economic it was never meant to be only economic the economic was the carrot the carrot for unity because you would see uh, uh 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 countries benefiting from economic unity but there is the the ambition was to bring about this unity more than just with uh, more than just on economic terms the country that is now uh, hoping to be admitted to the EU uh, now i think it will be admitted maybe this year is croatia and serbia is expected to be admitted shortly, or, or soon, uh, and they have sort of paid their entrance fee now by arresting uh, those people who did uh, committed uh, uh, genocidal crimes uh, in the in the war in, in Bosnia Herzegovina. That has been w- that the EU has been waiting for for uh, for the for Serbia to to uh, deliver. Uh, deliver those uh, people that have been sought for 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 the, what is considered or, what what they consider crimes against humanity. So uh, <clears throat> now I am coming from a country that has twice voted to join the EU, and twice the voters in Norway has turned it down, because mo- many countries have joined the EU without referendums, but m- most countries have had referendums and they have voted to to uh, not join uh, Iceland, ha- Iceland has never even applied Iceland has suffered of course had uh, one of the worst uh, economic co- of collapse of all the countries in Europe and Iceland now is, is applying for, e- for economic reasons the, the, uh, Switzerland is not a member and is not looking to apply the, the German Swiss are very much against it, the French Swiss are for it and in Norway, we have lots of people living in rural communities on the west coast of Norway, and the, their sense of happiness—what the, makes them happy—is that they cannot see the lights in the neighbor's house. You know, they feel most happy when they see no other houses in the in the in the area, and that makes for very poor. That's a very poor uh, background for uh, joining a, a, a sort of a supranational authority. <laughs> to to join, it's very difficult, because even if you're not a member these days, you have to live by the rules that the EU makes, because you have trade agreements and political agreements with the EU. So even if you're not a member, you kind of have to, to eat the dishes they cook in Brussels anyway. So so you, you are, you are kind of stuck, so, so people would be saying, yes, you might as well be a member, so you at least have some influence over the, you know, you can be part of writing the, the recipe, as it were. <clears throat> so, let's not bother ourselves too much with this, because it's more interesting for me, uh, maybe sort of within the European thing, but I think it ought to interest all of us to, su- to, to some extent. The Treaty on European Union has established the principle of subsidiarity as a general rule. That is a Thomistic principle. Thomas Aquinas is the greatest moral theologian of the Roman Catholic Church. His ideology was revived in the late 1900s. In the, uh, Leo XIII is a person who wants Uh, who wants to teach he wants the church to teach the ideas of Thomas Aquinas so you have what is called Neo-Thomism let's write his name on the board Aquinas I think he died in 1274 but you have to check that date I think he is in the 13th century Uh, I'm pretty sure about that (coughs) so he he was an extremely systematic person who wrote a book called Summa Theologica, The Sum of Theology. And there is hardly anything he doesn't deal with there. It is all over the place. And, and, and so he is also talking about political authority, church and state uh, uh, Relationships. He does not think democracy is a good way of ruling the world. He thinks that monarchy is the best way because monarchy is what you find in nature. In nature, he says, rule is always by one. There is always one on the top of the pyramid and so on. <coughs> but the principle of subsidiarity is a principle that the ideology of that principle has been, has been worked out within Roman Catholic type of thinking, and, and this principle specifies that in areas that are not within its exclusive powers, the community shall only take action where objectives can best be attained by action at community rather than at national level. Well, what is, it, what is that saying? It is saying that you should rule with local authority. You can have like you have in the uh, what do you have what would what would it compare to in in the u s you have counties and then you have states and then you have federal the federal government so you have uh, so this system here would be what would what would be uh, do you have in some sense a system of subsidiarity in this country in some sense you do because you have you have you know some, some balance between local and central authority. Now, in what way would the European system differ from from the American system? In what way does this principle of subsidiarity differ from what you have? Well, there are some areas there are some things that you the federal government, can the federal government intervene in local affairs? whenever it wants to it, it has been yes yeah. so you have a fierce ideological battle in this country about that about state and local a uh, state and federal authority some of that debate goes back to the civil war era because the southern states they they kind of flew their the right to hold slaves they did that under under an anti-federalist clause that they had the right to decide themselves whether they wanted to be slave states. And Lincoln said, you're not going to have that right. So when the Civil War was fought in some ways uh, within the framework of, of federal versus states' rights. Am I right? Yes. I am right about it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I could be wrong. <laughs> so the pro- the difference here I- I- between the U.S. the way your country is constituted and the uh, European system, what the European system is is uh, turning out to be, is that there are some areas that this, the federal government cannot interfere in in your your affairs locally. Maybe they do, and maybe they do it uh, 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 you know beyond what what is constitutionally legitimate. But the principle of subsidiarity says that. Yes, you will have you will decide locally what is the best, uh, and then uh, you will only have community action when uh, when when that, when needed when that is the best way of doing it. But the question is, who says? who says you know who says what is best who decides and I mentioned here before that one of the directives that has come from the UA is uh, from the EU is that that the sale of alcohol should be free you should have free free trade with respect to alcohol after all it's a free market and uh, in Norway we have <coughs> we have all liquor sales are by Government monopoly. You cannot, you can sell beer in the stores, but you cannot sell wine and, and, and hard liquor. That you can only sell in government owned stores. There is no free market for alcohol. And the EU says that we need a free market. That's what you're sworn to. So Norway is just sort of squirming around this because the EU has decided against what the local community thinks is best for it, that you should have, you know, free Free market. You see, there is a new new uh, issue going on right now about post offices, <laughs> because because you should have free free uh, market when it comes to postal service too, and and that uh, some people in the remote rural communities in a country like Norway will worry that they will lose their post office if you make it free market because you have to have. You know, you make money on your post office in Oslo, but you do not make money on your post offices on the, on the islands uh, in the north of Norway. So, again, there is a conflict between local authority and central authority. And you have a kind of super authority centrally that, that can overrule you whenever it feels like it, whenever it wants to. That's the point. And that's why I'm saying that you have unaccountability as a constitutional principle in the European Union. It's a hard discussion. But <coughs> run over these again. Robert Schumann was I do I do not want to say anything about him as anything other than a sincere person and for all I know a person of integrity. But he was a a hard Roman Catholic, from all his life very much a, a, a he was a both in Practice and intellectually, a person who understood Thomas Aquinas, who had studied Thomas Aquinas and the newer, the newer uh, uh, sort of more recent uh, uh, philosophers or, or people uh, thinkers who also wished to revive uh, uh, th- Thomist uh, thought, uh, so he, his idea for the new Europe uh, his, uh, in 1950, what he writes in 1950 is very much an idea that is framed, that is developed within the ideas, the thinking of Thomas Aquinas. You see that point, you know, and and the neo-Thomist ideas. So this is again, uh, there is much more economic integration than political integration, and Europe is in bad shape right now because they have had countries that have that have not. Uh, played by the rules so you have uh, Ireland you have uh, Portugal you have Greece leading the way Uh, Greece very corrupt in its political system and they have cooked the books and done all kinds of things Uh, but they have benefited hugely up to this point from being part of the European community but there has been no sort of political accountability for what is going on there and now Greece you know, who, who knows what will happen? It could break, it could break the currency, it could break, uh, break, I don't think it will break the union, but it could be a very, very steep uh, hill for Greece to climb. Now, maybe the European countries, the European community will bail them out. And if they do, uh, they will enable irresponsibility. Because it has been extremely irresponsible what has happened in Greece. So, so anyway, the notion of a Christian super authority here. By the way, this is Pius the Twelfth, who is the Pope for the during the war years, and who is also on the road to being canonized, at great offense to the Jews, who feel that he was a person who enabled. Uh, as a spiritual authority, he should have done much more to help the Jews. So that is a very offensive thing to the Jews, but he will be canonized. Don't, don't, don't think otherwise. Now, the notion of a Christian super authority is not, is not put into the constitution of the new Europe. That is not stated. But that is what, what the The church structure, the Roman church, thinks of itself as a super authority within this new structure, that it is, the European Union is something very much desired by the Catholic church, and the church sees itself as a kind of referee, a kind of moral super authority within this new system, even though that is not spelled out in the institution, the the church is not, is not allotted any uh, sort of uh, explicit role. It's just that you have to know the moving parts to know that the church is, is playing in the background here. The current pope, uh, Benedict XVI, whose name before was Joseph Ratzinger, he worked very, very hard to prevent entry of Turkey into the European Union. Uh, i th- I have read s- things recently saying that that uh, uh, that the Ro- that the papacy uh, that the Vatican is more friendly toward uh, allowing Turkey into the European union, but Ratzinger wants uh, argued in two thousand and four very much against uh, entry of turkey why because he wants it christian he doesn 't want a unity that you know it, it's European unity and he says let Turkey go elsewhere for its whatever unity it wants, because this is supposed to be a Christian kind of paradigm. So there are interesting things here, and don't for a moment think that that the, the papacy is not involved in these discussions. It it it, plays, it 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 has a very active diplomacy in these matters. Well, what about America? So. And again I am proposing these more more as exhibits you know do you have reacceptance of unaccountable authority in America today yes okay <laughs> i'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one i'm just proposing uh, proposing uh, exhibits here uh, this concept of extraordinary renditions what is an extraordinary rendition you don't know exactly you don't know exactly how would anyone know what an extraordinary rendition is because the i mean the, the language is when you say extraordinary rendition are you using language that intends to inform you about what is happening or are you using, using language that intends to conceal what is happening so the language itself the terminology itself is a terminology of what secrecy and it is a terminology of not wishing to be accountable would you would you agree with me that 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 it's it's tending in that direction you're you're choosing terminology that has that has a a kind of intent to obfuscate to make it kind of cloudy so let's uh, let me hear somebody who knows uh, can you define an extraordinary rendition for for us say what it is you are removed to another country for sources that aren't clear. Yes, okay. What else could you call it? What would you be? be what, what would you call it when somebody else? Or what has it also been called? Yeah. yeah. But extraordinary rendition. I'm, I have two terms here, and and I don't wish to to over over. Let's not overinterpret this. I just wish to 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 sort sort of explore some some features in in contemporary life. An extraordinary rendition is to kidnap somebody. The other word for for extraordinary rendition would be kidnapping. But you don't want to say that your country is kidnapping people. So you call it extraordinary rendition. But it is in some ways a de facto kidnapping. This person was picked off, I think he was in transit at the Kennedy Airport when he was arrested or when he was interrogated. And then eventually he ended up being sent to... to, uh, uh, Syria, where he was interrogated for about ten months by the, Syrians, the Syrian Syrian uh, authorities, and is said to have been tortured. I think Canada is paying him about ten million Canadian dollars in in uh, in uh, damages, and he has sued the U.S. government. He has sued the CIA, but the court uh, the, the case was thrown out this year by the Supreme Court because of what. National security, national security, which is a very convenient way of having to not face uh, accountability. So he is not the only one. Nobody knows how many people have been render- uh, rendered. Yes. Well, these are these are all post nine one one things. But the notion of kidnapping somebody and putting them away is not something that began completely 911. There has been, there were kidnappings during the Clinton years too, but they were usually kidnappings where you had kind of somebody had been identified. That was where the, the the degree of plausibility that this person was guilty was high. And some government, other government, said, please help us get this guy, you know. But it's still, you know, it's still in a sort of extraordinary rendition. So uh, now my point of this is just to say that extraordinary renditions are unaccountable, uh, are, belong in the context of unaccountability. That's the, my point. I don't wish to, to put Republican, Democrat, this or that on it. We're discussing the issue of accountability. And we are discussing whether there is a trend to accept unaccountable authority that's that's what I wish to 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 propose that there is a that what one is doing here uh, falls into a category of unaccountability number one because it is secret and number two because it assumes certain things about the person you have rendered that that is uh, is uh, against uh, the conven- conventional ideas of how uh, uh, how a, an accused person should be treated. You're supposed to be as guil- you're supposed to be innocent till proven guilty, would for we example. Would excessive executive authority uh, into that category? Would we put excessive executive authority into that category? Yes, of course you would, because. Because the number of people who decide these things are few. Very few people know about it. So this is very much something that happens in the executive branch of, of government, where the exec- ex- executive branch again and again can plead national security, secrecy, and, and not, not be held to account. And you, as voters in this country, you put your vote into the ballot box, and you might just be voting for... For unaccountability, you might just say, that's okay with me. You know, they do it for a good reason. The reason is national security. Thank you for protecting us. So what, you know, if, if, I, if, if, you, if I have to pay, you know, I'm discounting accountability for the sake of, you know, some higher good. You see what what's, what, what we're saying there. So now reacceptance of unaccountable authority also in the in uh, what is an enhanced interrogation let's do the vocabulary here enhanced interrogation it's a very interesting terminology uh uh so so what is the enhancement what is it you 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 uh, does it, does it sound like a does it sound like a euphemism does it sound like an a, a, a is it a term that is intended to illuminate you or is it intended to confuse you who are the pioneers of waterboarding in, in European history Spanish. that's the Spanish Inquisition and I showed you two weeks ago uh, pictures of, the, of, of of the waterboarding that the Spanish Inquisition did now so what do you call it enhanced interrogation what what if when other people did that to my people to, to, let's say that they do that to somebody from Norway, or let's say that other people subject an American soldier to waterboarding, you would call it you would call it torture. One did, one did call it torture before. So how did it, did it suddenly become enhanced interrogation? <coughs> so and, and say that again. <laughs> okay, that, that changes the terminology, depending on on uh, and who is doing it and and for what reason. Again, we don't. It's said that only two people have been seriously waterboarded. You know, we don't know for sure how many have been waterboarded enhanced interrogations is not just waterboarding it is sleep deprivation noise all kinds of things that makes a person lose their mental bearings that's what it is to make that person say something they would not say if they were in their right mind and that may even make that person say something that isn't true admit to something that didn't happen in uh, because they are under under mental pressure to do that the most offensive kind of Waterboarding or torture, I know of, in 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 historical terms, is what happened to the Jews during the Black Death. When the Black Death epidemic hit Europe, the hardest one, the worst, the worst of the epidemics, what we call the Black Death, in about 1348, 1350, and and uh, 25 million. Uh, the uh, if it if it had been if it had been the equivalent of the Black Death, the death toll of the Black Death would be equivalent to 100 million Americans dying within two years. You and I would consider that. That would be, enough, that would be bad from an infectious disease. That, that would be a disease to remember, wouldn't it? You know, so, so that's uh, what... Ha- see, when the Black Death hit Europe... There were all kinds of theories of, you know, what was it? What caused it? And there was a te- terrible ignorance in Europe about disease and contagion and all those things. But one of the, one of the problems was that you found a scapegoat. And who was the scapegoat? The Jews. And there were reasons for that. So you find a Jew, you submit that person to torture, you know, and you get that person to incriminate himself, you get proof that it was the Jews. What? That's what we said all along. It's the Jews, you know. Yes, and he admitted it. It was you, you know. They did do it. They poisoned the wells, and so you had found proof. You used torture. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why that kind of of uh, of authority seems to be a bad way of doing it. Everything secretly generates. Even the administration of justice. When you have court cases in the US, you have closed doors or open doors? I'm asking the lawyer. It depends. You if you have closed doors it, it's extraordinary. Yes, there are. Yes, sure, sure. There are things, things where you may have closed doors, but generally you have open doors. I mean, I mean, by and large, you have open doors. Uh, and why do you have open doors? Because you, because the court is also being judged. As the court judges the other person, it is also being judged. It has to be seen. The, whatever the court is doing, it has to be seen to be fair uh, by the larger society. So, anyway, uh, <coughs> uh, let me not go there yet. Uh, so, Lord Acton: everything secret generates even the administration of justice. Nothing is safe that does not show how it can bear discussion and publicity. That's that's from from our uh, book that I have uh, referred to a number of times here. Okay, <coughs> here is. A proposition that might exceed what you think this subject warrants. Orwellian and Kafkaesque. Maybe do you have you ever used the word Orwellian in a sentence? That's Orwellian. Have you ever used the word Kafkaesque? No, no. You have? Did you write an essay once and re- and use the word Kafkaesque? <laughs> but you might have. But you've seen it used in sentences. So what do people you, you mean when they, when they have taken these, uh, these the names of George Orwell or the name of Franz Kafka and turned them into adjectives? Turn them into to, to ways to that an adjective qualifies the noun, tells you something about an action. So George Orwell is best known for his books, The Animal Farm, in 1984. Some of you have read these books, have you? Animal Farm which have you read 1984 Okay <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Anyway so these are Orwellian times because one of the one of the emphases in George Orwell is that in order to corrupt a society you have to corrupt the language you have to corrupt the terminology you have to learn how to call Something, something other than what it is. So he has this notion of black-white. He has a concept of new speak, new type of way, black-white. This the ability to accept whatever truth the party puts out, no matter how absurd it may be. George Orwell's target is communism. It's total totalitarian societies, and it is quite, quite, quite. It's quite contrary to expectations that the same kind of problem that you have in these totalitarian societies that he critiques mostly has now asserted itself in what we would consider uh, the free world so anyway let's not uh, belabor that point there is a lot there you can go on the internet and find it and I would I think still that the book both of these books Animal Farm and 1984 have staying power they're not, they have not run their course. They have still staying power for, for our, our world. <coughs> Kafka was a Jewish author from, from the Czech Republic who did not live very long, and he wanted all his books to be destroyed. Uh, in, at the turn of the millennium, the year 2000, this was the book that was, I don't know if it was worldwide, it was certainly in Europe, this book was the book that was nominated to be the book for the 20th century the trial how many of you may have read the trial yeah, yeah. well it's it's a horrible book i don't know if i want to anyone to read it because it is it, it's just a very very horrible book <laughs> it's such a horrible reality. There is somebody there who is accused, but he never gets to find out what he is accused of. He never gets to meet his accusers. He knows from the beginning that he's going to be found guilty, because they tell him when they come to arrest him, they arrest him in his house, and the people who come to arrest him, there is no boundary between normal and abnormal, between, you know, being free and being an accused, because he is, he is throughout the book he's free, but he's in jail, as it were. At the same time, he's free and not free. And he goes through all these motions, and they tell him when they come to arrest him, he asks them, what should I wear? And the, and the and the wardens, they tell him, well, it doesn't matter as long as it is a black coat, they say. And then he answers immediately, but there isn't a capital charge yet. You know, He knows that the black coat means that he will... Be seen as guilty, and in the end, he is executed. He has capital punishment in the end, but he never met the court. He never got a sentence. He never knows who accused him. You know, it is just, just a a complete sort of uh, eerie type of reality, and uh, senseless, disorienting, often menacing complexity. And it applies especially to bureaucracies where you never get to know what could I talk to your supervisor? Could I talk to your supervisor? I do that. My wife has also done it at the airports when we get met, fouled up with with, uh, with the airline people and we say, could I speak to the supervisor? <laughs> and they say, there is no supervisor. <laughs> I asked for that once. I was stranded in, in uh, I think in Manchester or Liverpool and I was extremely upset about the way things had gone with my flight. So I... Th- I told the person there, I want to talk to the supervisor. <laughs> i would never done that before. And when I arrived at Edinburgh, they had a taxi waiting for me who took me there where I needed to go. So it really, <laughs> it really, it really helped. What Orwellian and Kafkaesque means, in, short, in a short version of it, is that accountability is loosing. That you are not no longer facing accountable authorities. That's that's basically uh, that's one 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 significant aspect of it. That 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 there, you lose your bearings. Who is in charge? Who is sort of uh, you know the person who and what is going on here and the meaning of words and everything is is a mess. So anyway, I'm suggesting that we live in Orwellian and Kafkaesque times. So to our sort of moving into somewhat of a conclusion here. The Roman Church has never yielded on its claim to wield unaccountable authority. I think we said that last time. The exercise of unaccountable authority is now widely accepted in Europe. In some ways, the European community is structured to some extent, to some degree, as an unaccountable authority. And it is also gaining ground in the US. These are the leaders of the, these are the intellectual forefathers of the French Revolution. And Lord Acton says about these persons, this is Montesquieu, this is Turgot, this is Rousseau, this is who? This is the guy everybody is supposed to know. Who is that? That's Voltaire. That's Voltaire. And this is Diderot. This is just an assemblage of pre-revolutionary thinkers in France. And Lord Acton says about them, they were all ideologically diverse, and Lord Acton says about them, all of these people were said to be liberal. The only thing common to them all was disregard of liberty, that these champions of liberty did not understand liberty. And I, I mean these images here more as metaphors. I don't mean them as individuals. I want you to see them as metaphors. Metaphors for what? Where the value you fight for, let's say that the value you fight for is a value you don't fully understand yourself. That you, you, you have, what is the value you fight for? The value you fight for is freedom. But freedom is not only a result. Freedom is not something only you have at the end of a certain process. Freedom is also a value that placed by certain rules. There are certain things you can do within a freedom agenda. There are certain things you cannot do. Or you will be defeated by choosing the wrong method. Do you hear me? It was a complicated sentence. Freedom is not only a result. It is also a method, a means toward a result. And and, and it is not something that you... not. Not any kind of method will do if freedom is your agenda. The one thing in common to to them all, the French revolutionaries, was that they didn't understand the value they claimed to be champion, because the French Revolution became a terrible, terrible uh, thing. And who knows what these others have in common. In this book by by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a, a U.S. senator from New York, he has a. He refers at the end of the book to a letter written to him by George Kennan, where Kennan says, We easily become ourselves the sufferers from these methods of deception. He's talking about the growth of the CIA and of secret services in America. We easily become ourselves the sufferers from these methods of deception, for they inculcate in their authors as well as well as their intended victims, unlimited cynicism, causing them to lose all realistic understanding of interrelationship in what they are doing of ends and means. And he is writing that at the time when this is the Cold War, end of the Cold War reflection. But the extent of secret services in this country is much, much larger now than it was 10, 15 years ago. It has become much, much bigger for reasons that some of you will know. Here is a, com- a quotation from Helmut Gollwitzer, a Lutheran German pastor, that he, uh, from a sermon he preached on Revelation 12, 7 to 12. That's the cosmic conflict there was war in heaven, and so on. Here is what he says. Everyone has become a captive of a fateful illusion that believes itself able to drive out evil by force. In this world, where we everywhere marshal force against force, we must learn that force at best may succeed in containing a few manifestations of evil, but it can never conquer or eliminate evil. On the contrary... The force with which we fight evil has mainly the consequence that we ourselves become the victims of evil. As we resort to force against others, evil attacks us from behind and makes us evil ourselves. One of the most subtle, hard-to-grasp things about cosmic conflict theology is not that God wins the war. It's how he wins it. It's the means that he has devised toward the end of winning. See, it's main, in many ways all about means. and in, in Christian theology, we have kind of lost sight of that in the history of, 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 uh, of uh, theology. Here is uh, a pope being kissed by, by his subjects, and here is Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. This is Lucas Cranach, the elder, Who uh, did these, uh, these uh, caricatures in the 15th, 16th century. These are priceless. This is, of course, religious and political propaganda of the highest order, but they have a point. Do you see? See what? Have you seen these before? I want to do this in the end and give you a quiz, because this is uh, before the summer, so you need to have, we need to have a quiz. Here is a, a biblical framework for my subject. And God is talking to himself in Genesis 18:17 as he is investigating what is going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah and God is saying to himself shall i hide from abraham what i am about to do answer what's the implied answer well he doesn't say no but it is implied Shall I hide from him what I am about to do? No, for I have known him with the result that he may charge his children after me. And one of the other ways to read this text is, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Shall God, the highest authority, shall he do it transparently? Shall he do it accountably? Or shall he do it non-transparently and unaccountably? You hear what the text, what we're asking in that text? Shall I hide from my subject? God, you know, the infinite one and human beings, very much finite ones. You know, shall God hide it from the subject? And here is the quiz. True or false? Abraham's dialogue with God over the fate of Sodom shows that the true believer never questions God. True or false? Abraham is remembered as God's friend because he trusted God without asking any questions. Thank you very much. We'll uh, see. Uh, I hope we'll see many of you for the potluck this afternoon. This was our last class before the summer. Uh, God willing, we, we might try to resume again in uh, October, and then there will be a, a note to that effect. Uh, uh, so we'll be talking about that. But thank you so much for, for everything, and, and, uh, and mm-hmm. have a good summer. Thank you.